0: This is the Education Gadfly Show.
1: Did you visit him in jail? (laughs) Uh, I did not. (laughs) Okay. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Elliot Regenstein. Elliot, welcome to the show.
0: Great to be back. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, my gosh, it's great to have you back. I will introduce you properly in a moment, but first, let us welcome my regular co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Great to have you on. You know, Elliot's formal title is a Chicago-based partner at Foresight Law and Policy, but that doesn't tell you a whole lot. It's it's so little information, it's almost sketchy. It's like, oh, that must be one of those Illuminati kinds of things.
0: Just teasing, just teasing. My application to the Illuminati is still pending. Oh, okay. We we Uh, don't do conspiracy theories. We're a small law firm that works with states, and we do some federal work as well. But most of my work is with states around the country, including a lot of work in Wyoming the last couple of years, which has been super interesting. And I focus a lot on early childhood, but also have worked on K-12 issues. And in fact, was fortunate to sort of learn all of them at once as a governor's education policy advisor. So that gives me, I think, a little bit of a different perspective than folks who either start in K-12 and learn early learning from that perspective, or start in early learning and learn K-12 from that perspective.
1: Now, that's great, Elliot. And the governor was a governor of Illinois, right? Yes, was the governor
0: of Illinois. Okay.
1: And is he in jail right now?
0: Uh, Not currently, no. (laughs) But was? Wait, which governor was it? It was Rob McLevich. Oh, no.
1: Yeah. Well, you know,
0: I was grateful for (laughs) that.
1: So, in other words, had he gotten that Senate seat, you probably would have gone with him to be his uh, education policy advisor. In the
0: I Senate. don't know. I don't know that I would have gotten that invite. Okay. We were tight personally, I would say. <laughs> okay.
1: Did you visit him in jail? Did they... uh, I did not. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I don't usually give our guests this much of a hard time, but I've known Elliot a long time. I'm a big fan of Elliot's. And we're especially excited because Elliot has a new book out. Is
0: this your first book? It is my first book. I did a chapter in one of your books a few years yes. ago, and I've done another, a couple of other book chapters, but this is the first time I really swallowed the whole frog, as it
1: were. All right. Well, we are going to talk about that book on Ed Reform Update. Let's get started. So the book is called Education Restated, Getting Policy Right on Accountability, Teacher Pay, and School Choice. I told you before the show, I was going to tease you a little bit about this title, Education Restated. In a way, I love it. It's rather modest. Most people are like, education reimagined, education transformed. You're just restating. Although maybe, is there a play on words here? Is this a little bit of a pun there? Um, Yeah, because I
0: think that the role of states is so important and not a believer that the federal government can solve all problems. So really want to see states not only change their policies, but perhaps think differently about their role. And I know this is something Fordham's worked on too, right? Some of the work you've done with on state education agencies, the helm, not the oar, right? Which yeah. is a fun report from a few years back. I really think that states do so much that creates the conditions in which schools operate. And thinking of themselves as sort of a condition creator rather than the people who are actually making decisions on behalf of those schools A lot of folks at the state level get that, but not all do. It's getting policy right on accountability, teacher pay, and
1: school choice. So let's go one by one. You know, give us your uh, 30-second version of getting accountability
0: right. Where do we need to head? The 30-second version is that one overarching thing is that in all of these areas, my argument is that there is some central idea that has been driving our policy that needs to be fundamentally changed if we're going to get policy right. accountability. The thing I think we've fundamentally gotten wrong is the belief that having an accountability system centered solely on third grade through high school is ever going to drive us to the results we need. Because what happens in those years, while desperately important, is likely to be that schools are giving kids roughly one year's worth of progress every year. And that if the kids are way behind coming up to that time period, Mm -hmm. there's only so much you can do. It's to really refocus accountability to incorporate earlier years and get the whole system focused on what happens before third grade in addition to afterwards.
1: That was great. And you were preaching to the choir on that one. You know, we've talked a lot about that on this show, about how it's crazy that accountability starts so late, that testing starts so late, that, you know, as a result, you really are measuring elementary schools by what happens during fourth and fifth grades since you start at the end of third grade test to the end of fifth grade test, that's nuts. And of course, you're talking about much more than testing here, talking about getting the policies and practices right. But no, I think that insight is super important. The clock is ticking and it's so late. Kindergarten is late. There's so much that happens before that. How do we get a handle on that? Let's do the same thing on teacher pay. I'll give you 35 seconds this time.
0: All right, great. Well, so on teacher pay, my argument is that we've gotten the market completely wrong the thing that is the key driver of teacher pay is seniority. Mm-hmm. And not to say the seniority doesn't matter, right? Like as people are in the system, you know, they should get paid more on an ongoing basis, but that the real driver should be role, which is to say, if we're going to improve outcomes for the kids who need it most, we need to pay the teachers working with those kids the most. Because right now what happens is the highest paid teachers are the ones working with, in many instances, the sort of most accomplished kids and that that's completely backwards if we're trying to close gaps and, and raise performance at the lowest levels. The reality is for kids like mine, you know, who come from a two-lawyer family in a language-rich environment, there are a lot more teachers who can succeed with those kids than in some of the tougher environments mm-hmm. where schools that have historically had limited resources. It's really about making a stronger focus, both intra and inter district, mm-hmm. on how are we paying the most money to the teachers working with the kids who are least likely to be successful without great teachers? Fair enough. Although I will say, you know, we did cover on this
1: show not too long ago, Amber had on a research minute this newish study just appeared again in Education Next, showing that maybe there isn't a teacher effectiveness gap after all as we thought there was between high poverty and low poverty schools. Again, a lot of this comes down to how you measure it and some of the statistics behind it. But that that maybe it's a little bit of a myth that, you know, you've got these lower quality teachers in high poverty schools. Well, to
0: be very clear, I'm not arguing that the current teachers in high poverty schools are less effective. And in fact, I agree with your point that the evidence is that in many instances they are effective. I'm talking about, is the job more or less attractive, Mm -hmm. right? And that over time, if you're going to systemically attract high quality educators to those positions, you need to make those jobs more attractive. And in a capitalist society as we are, Mm -hmm. money is one of the most important ways to do that.
1: And finally, school choice, let's trim it down to 28 seconds.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really pro school choice, um, as I know you are. And my main argument here is that district boundaries and attendance boundaries mean far too much right now. I you know, I'm sort of roughly pro-charter school, but not thinking that charter schools are the answer to the question. Um,
1: no, they are the answer, Elliot, to whatever okay. question. Yeah, I'm glad.
0: <laughs> okay. uh, well, I'm, I'm glad you still think that. But the idea is that in addition to charter schools, that you need a much more robust system of inter-district choice, and in fact, need to basically tie that to better subsidies that make it more attractive for some of the districts that are currently higher resource to Mm -hmm. diversify their student portfolio. My thesis is that in the, and again, this is mostly in the suburbs, right? Although also in big cities, recognizing that rural areas, like it's just hard to do this, but that in many metropolitan areas, there are a lot of parents who have higher incomes and but would be interested in sending their kids to more diverse schools under the right circumstances, let's Mm -hmm. say economically diverse schools, at least, because the Supreme Court says you can do that as opposed to some other categories. There are parents who would like to do that, but that the state has set up systems of district boundaries that make it harder than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm for local control. I'm not talking about getting rid of school districts. I I still think that if districts don't want to participate, they should have the right not to. But that if the state was putting its thumb on the scale pretty heavily in favor of, hey, like, let's have more exchanges. Let's have more interdistrict choice and make it easier for low-income parents to find a school that meets their kids' needs in a larger community, that would be for the better. So that's the premise of that argument.
1: Really well done. By the way, Ellie, I got to say, it's hard when you write a whole book to summarize your arguments so concisely. So bravo for that. You're gearing up for your big book tour, and you're, you're going to be ready to do that very well when you're on the road. David, some thoughts?
2: Yeah. Am I supposed to push back on any of that? Because it's awfully hard to. I mean, you you named my three big planks in a slightly different form than I would. I'm intrigued by the last one, and I'm intrigued that you framed it in terms of Interdistrict choice, do you think that's more promising than, for example, like a weighted lottery for charter schools or some intra-district choice, right? Like what, what makes you think that's the mechanism for more integration within the school choice world?
0: Sure. Well, look, David, if I couldn't persuade you, right, my odds were pretty long on this thing. <laughs> Here's the thing about charter schools. I, I think that the argument for charter schools as potentially innovative and offering something completely different than a neighborhood school and, and meeting a different need, I buy that, right? And I think that charter schools can really add that. There is also value to neighborhood schools, right? And parents want lots of different things from schools. And that when the market is as hyper segmented as it is now, right? And again, maybe this is partially shaped by living in a suburban area where if I walked two miles in either direction, I'd be in a completely different school district. That. There must be ways to open up those boundaries, allow people more choice, and that parents would like that and that school districts could manage that. And that it's not anti-union, it's not anti-school districts. It's just look, like we have a lot of different kinds of resources available, and tying it so tightly to exactly where you bought real estate isn't necessarily the right result. I will say I was struck in sort of research for this book, reading about New Orleans, and there is a whole set of arguments that what happened in New Orleans after Katrina, when you know, the whole system was replaced by charter schools, that that was an incredible innovation, brought a lot of new energy and blood into the city. Another whole set of arguments basically saying, look, like this was a way of destroying the Black middle class infrastructure so that a bunch of young white kids could come in and teach in what amounted to a grand experiment on poor black children. Can't it be both? I mean, well, and I'm not saying either of them are wrong, by the way, but one of the things that struck me is that in all of the grand experiment, the one thing, the one institution that survived was the district boundary, right? Mm -hmm. The district disappeared, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the teaching force disappeared, the district boundary stayed, and it doesn't even appear that there was any serious discussion about, hey, like, what if we had like a more regional solution here? Whatever your narrative on New Orleans, and again, I suspect that there's truth to all of it, Mm -hmm. that the fact that that was the thing that survived, that was the cockroach in the nuclear holocaust, that is the thing that isn't quite right. These boundaries just mean too much. And I'm honestly not 100% sure how exactly it's going to work to you know i have some proposals on that you know even my mother was like well i'm not 100% sure i buy all that but like <laughs> okay. i'd like to at least see more experimentation there and i think the state government could do a lot to help with that encourage that and let people try some things see how they work and if they don't work try something different
2: we have time i have one more question which is on the the teacher pay one
1: we have time we'll just cut it afterwards that's fine so I- <laughs> we and we won't tell you about it No, i'm just teasing i'm teasing lily i'm i'm not teasing go ahead david You said teacher pay, but of course, that's
2: only one dimension of job quality. Are you convinced that that is what's missing? I mean, I'm all for putting more resources into low-income classrooms, but honestly, like if you asked me if I wanted higher pay or if I wanted a classroom without 35 kids in it, I might have said the latter, right? And I say that as someone who isn't you know, fully on board with reducing class sizes, right? But I do think there's something to the notion that, the, you know, no matter how much you pay people, right, if the job sucks, they're going to leave, right? I guess I'm just curious to know if you really think teacher pay is the thing that needs to change.
0: Well, I, I'm not arguing that it's the only thing that needs to change, right? Yeah. So like, I totally get it. And I think that in general, if schools serving the lowest income populations had more resources generally That some of it might go to teacher pay, some of it might go to other things. Again, like I'm I'm not an expert on school administration, so I wouldn't want to argue against your point. I think I'm only arguing that in the larger state systems, and then in many instances in large districts, district systems, that the incentive structure is set up Mm -hmm. so that. Teachers are like, well, I'm making more money now, and I have the option to go to an, a school where it's probably going to be easier, so I'm going to take that option, and what I'm saying is that from the district standpoint, they might frame the choice differently and say, look, if you're going to go to this school that's like a you know heavily Title I population, you know, a lot of free and reduced lunch, we'll pay you more, or you can go to this other school with a much wealthier population, and we'll pay you less. You choose, and that perhaps the more senior teachers get first choice. One imagines that over time, if you had a system more like that, a lot of the other factors in some of these schools serving lower-income children from lower-income families might also start to change. But it's really about like what is the happening with this particular policy driver, and not an argument that like that's the only thing that's going to solve the problem.
1: Great stuff, Elliot. We could go on and on. But we don't want to ruin the book for people. They should get the book, again, called Education Restated, Getting Policy Right on Accountability, Teacher Pay, and School Choice. Elliot Regenstein, thanks so much for being back on the show. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll have you back sometime. Hey, write another book. We'll have you back on. How about that?
0: (laughs) We'll
3: do.
1: It's now time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. We have this running joke here that sometimes when we're recording these podcasts, we can only see the back of Amber's head for some reason. It's some technology problem, but it's okay because we just saw your smiling face in person last week at our big all staff. You did. Retreat.
3: You did. That was uh, so much fun after not having seen each other for so long. Oh, my The whole boredom God. gang. And we got swag. I'm so excited about my t-shirt and hat.
1: I know we got an education gadfly T-shirt and a Fordham hat. I don't know. Maybe we should start selling this stuff. Maybe our fans (laughs) out there would
3: want (laughs) one. I feel like we should maybe have to wear the T-shirt or the hat when we have our next event. You know. Yeah.
1: Did you stay late at the? We we went out to the uh, pins mechanical or something and had like. Uh, I did. I did, but I did a little bit more.
3: I didn't do too much playing games. I did a little bit more, more, more drinking and festivity, but I heard you guys played some duck pin bowling, right?
1: We we did. Did you partake, David?
2: I took a pass on that. I pleaded fatherhood.
1: Yes. (laughs) You had a chance for a good night's sleep. So that's understandable. Well, I'm telling you, knocking down those little duck pins is harder than it looks, but I I think we discovered that if you just throw the ball at the pins as hard as you can, even though you're not that far away from them, that that's your best strategy.
3: It's kind of like education <laughs> yeah. reform.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we try to finesse it too much around here. <laughs> All right. But speaking of finesse, studies
3: that have a lot of finesse, I don't know. Amber, what you got for us? There we case? go. We'll, what we'll try that as yeah. a lead in. I'm going to do a qualitative report today. It has been, I don't know how many years since I've done a qualitative report, but this is an important topic. It's from UC Santa Barbara's Carolyn Sotten-Bajaj. She dives into issues surrounding student transportation in choice-rich districts as part of the Urban Institute Student Transportation Working Group. They got some Walton funds to dig into transportation and choice. So she interviewed uh, numerous district administrators, charter school leaders, charter authorizers, and stakeholders, advocacy organizations, and local foundations in three choice-rich school districts with varying transportation policies. We all know, like, you got to have transportation because that's going to help kids get to higher quality schools, uh, but it also costs a lot of money. It's a high ticket item. So some places are trying to reduce expenses, which is what the interviews were mostly about. Let me give you a quick thumbnail sketch of the policies in each district. So New York City, the DOE oversees transportation for all kids, including in charters. Yellow buses are available for kids in grades K through 6 depending on their distance and miles from home to school. Kids grade 7 and above are given metro cards so they can use on uh, public buses in some ways. Again, based on their distance from home to school. If the kids don't qualify for the yellow bus or the full fare metro card, they may be eligible for a half fare metro card. In Detroit, looks very different only kids attending district schools are guaranteed transportation so if kids are enrolled in a charter or in a neighboring district through participation in michigan's schools of choice program uh, whether they receive transportation is at the discretion of the school or district and paid by the school cmo or district although students with disabilities who qualify for special bus services do get that individualized transportation And then finally, uh, we're in New Orleans. Uh, Louisiana state law requires public districts to provide transportation for students living farther than one mile from school. The charters are considered their own LEA and therefore responsible for the cost. In many cases, this means that charters run yellow buses. Leaders in all three districts said that transportation costs were among their largest ticket items with transport for special needs children especially high. For instance, in New York City in 2016-17, special needs kids comprised 13% of the population but accounted for 75% of the transportation budget. So here are the key strategies. I'm going to fly through these. Districts say they either offer in terms of transportation or they use to reduce the cost of transportation. There are eight of them. Number one, they contract with the district for yellow buses although they are then at the mercy of the district's bell schedule. Number two, they negotiate their own contracts, but those are super pricey because they're not getting that cost efficiencies. Number three, they purchase a small fleet of buses, but they can't often afford the maintenance on those fleet of buses. Number four, they make financial trade-offs such as not providing buses so they can pay teachers more. They need to recruit high-quality teachers, or they provide buses to ensure that they have sufficient enrollment to stay open, uh, but then they compromise on teacher pay. Number five, they do tiering, which means they use the same bus to pick up students on different routes by staging the arrival times. So some kids might get to school at 7:30 and others at 8:30. Number six, they cut the number of bus routes, which also increases student time on the bus, which parents don't really like that. Number 7 they rebid the bus contracts to try to get lower a lower cost provider. Or number 8 they set administrator pay low and they operate a lean central office in order to be able to kind of help out that transportation cost. And then there's another section which gives a bunch of other transportation challenges and includes high student mobility because kids come and go. And this impacts the current bus routes. And then they get a bunch of requests from parents for new routes, um, which puts them in a upheaval as a, a chartered district. Uh, parents are worried about safety on the bus, especially when kids are leaving or returning home in the dark, when they've got these longer routes to cut down on the number of routes. Uh, they worry about student misbehavior on the bus and not being able to afford the hiring of bus attendants, which apparently is standard practice for district schools. And then they worry about the shortage of bus drivers as a result of the pandemic. And so they close with saying some districts are now paying families to make their own arrangements if they have kids eligible for school transportation, and then they choose not to use it. Uh, And the authors finally encourage more centralization of transportation within and across schools and across sectors for better negotiated contracts. But I think that's easier said than done. That's what I've got, just some qualitative info on how tricky transportation can be in these choice districts. And we, we heard about this from our own team at the retreat this week. I thought this was especially salient.
1: No, sure is, Amber. As part of the retreat, I, we were in Columbus and I got to go see uh, two of our great charter schools in Columbus. And this is exactly what they are struggling with. They contract with the districts, which means, as you said, you're at the mercy of the district. It's hard to get out of that. You've got to decide way in advance that you're going to do your own transportation. That's a whole nother thing. But man, it's just terrible if the district's not picking your kids up. There's one of the schools there, there's 50 kids still a day missing school because they're just not getting picked up. This is a huge headache and not an easy one to fix in the middle of the tightest labor market we've ever seen.
2: There's the sort of transition cost Angle, right, which is these competing systems, right, and get, getting something up and running in a, a charter context. And there's also kind of the deeper problem. I think it's more of a tangle. It, once you open the Pandora's box of school choice, right, like it's just the ways that kids have to get from one point to the other. It's an increasingly complex spider web. I didn't hear anything in there. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear anything there that really spoke to the more fundamental challenge of designing bus routes in a place where Rightly, we've given families the opportunity to take their kids across town or not. I don't know. I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about tiering because it sounded like it was starting to get at that having different times, which seems like a lot of logistical hassle, but potentially worth it. I don't know. I, I spent like ten whole minutes thinking about this before the podcast, Mike, and I got to say it's it's a tough nut to crack. Uh, uh, it's hard. <laughs> you it's know, hard. you could throw a ton of money at it, right? And you can imagine parents using, you know, ride apps or whatever, but it would be a ton of money. I mean, I'm usually for money, but it just strikes me as incredibly inefficient way to address the challenge and security would still be, you know, kind of an issue. Uh,
3: I want to hear more about giving the parents the money. You know, if they had eligible kids to take the bus and they chose not to for whatever reason, I wonder how much money they're getting here. Can parents pull together and do their own kind of Uber system amongst themselves to take turns taking kids?
1: My understanding is that Arizona is trying to experiment with some cool stuff around this. You know, that's in the Phoenix metro area. Kids are crossing all kinds of district boundaries and charter schools, private schools. And so they are experimenting with some Uber type things or small vans that make these trips instead of yellow buses and Look, it's a huge Gordian knot because it has to do with all the regulations about keeping kids safe, plus all the money stuff, plus all these different systems. So let's at least acknowledge it's hard for the districts as well, that this is one of those constraints that we've always had. You know, you say, why is it the schools are doing X, Y and Z? Well, it turns out that uh, sometimes it's because of the buses and changing the bus system is prohibitively expensive. And so we we should have some sympathy for all of the school administrators are trying to figure this out.
3: And some creative thinking about getting the kids with special needs there. It just seems like that's very costly. And obviously, that needs to be handled with care. But we don't see a lot of creative thinking there either, you know, how to make this work for those kids.
2: I mean, my gut is that some sort of voucher for parents is the way to go here, right? Precisely because there's no single solution. For some parents, you know, they may be willing to subsidize that, right? And just pay for an Uber every day, right? Or maybe several parents could do it. It strikes me as such a hyper local, unique challenge. you know mm-hmm. we live on up on this one hill, we live you know down by the river, we live in Manhattan. We, I mean, we couldn't come up with any solution that would solve every parent's challenge. It's kind of like school choice that way, right? in the sense that it's exactly the kind of situation that calls for some sort of voucher or subsidy that allows people to work out their own, individual solution. Well, we will let
1: David have the last word on that. Good stuff, Amber. We have moved away from disruptive studies oftentimes because, you know, we're mm-hmm. so fancy now and as is the field, but hey, that was a good one. That's important. <laughs> it was, it was,
3: cause, cause just for the reason we discussed. It's it's a, it's a hard one to do, uh, you know, anyway, any way, but qualitatively, you know, trying to try to get to the real
1: issues. That is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off.
0: The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.